This week, just like last week, we're giving you guys and gals a special bonus podcast. Coming up next, our interview with Dina Castor, the woman you voted the greatest American distance runner in history. But don't worry, our normal podcast will be dropping later on this week. Hello and welcome everyone to the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. This is Jonathan Galt. I'll be joined shortly by my co-host, Robert Johnson. Last week, we were lucky enough to be joined by one goat of American distance running, Jim Ryan. This week, we have another. She is the American record holder in the marathon, a two-time World Cross Country Championships medalist. She's the last American woman to win the Chicago Marathon, the last American woman to win the London Marathon. She's the president of the Mammoth Track Club. She is Dina Castor. Thank you so much for joining us uh, this afternoon, Dina. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. John, I think you, you left out. Best-selling author, New York Times. I mean, her accolade list is so long. I feel like we had to, we'd run out eventually. Four-time I Footlocker know. finalist, I found out. But uh, Yeah, uh, Footlocker finalist, yes, when it um, back in the olden days. I guess it was Kinney for you. It was Kinney. <laughs> it was, it's always been Footlocker for me, so that's yeah. how I think of it. But um, I guess that that's kind of way... I mean, that's kind of where I wanted to start is like high school. And, you know, obviously you, you had a decorated career at every level. But what was interesting to me is, you know, you're a four-time finalist, but your best finish was was six, which isn't, you know, terrible. But it's also, you know, you didn't win that. You didn't win an NCAA title in college. But then you go on to have a career that our readers have voted the greatest in the history of American distance running on the women's side. It's kind of curious to me, you know, you, you – I wouldn't call you a late bloomer, but at the same time, it wasn't like you were winning every race in high school. And I guess, how do you sort of view that? Yeah, I think starting, it's a great question because when I started running at the age of 11, I was, I was good right away and I loved it. Whether, whether, which one came first, I'm not really sure, but simultaneously I fell in love with running and, and was uh, dubbed very talented at it. And I heard the word talent all the time. Um, and I don't say that to gloat. I say it because I have a very complex relationship with the word. And so when you're, when you're told so often at a young age, when you don't really understand sport and discipline and goal setting, um, I was, I just thought I had this natural born ability. And when I lined up to race, I hoped my natural born ability would outshine the the competitors next to me and i had no idea what it what it was like to to actually apply myself and nurture the talent as opposed to just let it uh ride itself so um it wasn't really until i joined coach v hill that i understood that um running success takes a 24/7 job that everything you do in the day either takes away from or um, or caters to the goals that you have. So it was, um, I, I was, I was never satisfied in high school and college and, um, Kinney was probably, or Foot Locker was probably, um, the most, uh, I think discouraging performances of, of my entire career because I just thought I was failing miserably that here I was this California five-time California state champion, and I couldn't make it to that next national level. And then the burden of having a scholarship and not being able to win an NCAA title for my, for my team. It was, um, I had a really, um, a really, I, I started getting into a darker place with running. It wasn't as satisfying and joyful as my childhood. And it wasn't until I got to coach V Hill that I was able to, to crack that open again and understand running at a, at a deeper level and apply myself all day, every day, mentally, physically, emotionally into, into striving towards my goals. Was there a moment or a particular conversation that 
allowed you to come to that realization with him? It was the very first phone conversation I had with him, and it was five minutes long. I called him from Arkansas. Uh, my assistant coach, uh, Mylon Donnelly, gave me his phone number just to ask him about altitude training because I was curious as to why the East Africans were were performing so well on a global level and so knew that if I wanted to pursue running, that altitude would be a place that I wanted to go to make that first proper choice. And he used terminology that I that I never heard of, a VO2 max and um, adrenal cortical reserves and an athlete's lifestyle and all these terms that were so foreign to me. I thought, wow, for someone who's been in this sport almost their entire life, um, I have a lot to learn. And this is the guy that's going to teach me. Am I understanding correctly? Did you not realize the benefits of altitude until your senior year in college? Or that was just when you first started asking about it? Um, I understood it a little bit because my high school team would come up to Mammoth Lakes where I currently live. We would come up to Mammoth for summer camps for a couple of weeks. And, um, but for me, I mean, knowing, knowing now, um, you don't get a benefit at altitude when you're just coming up here for two weeks to dork around and, and run excessive mileage with your, with your teammates. The benefit at that point is the camaraderie and, and getting in some, some good training before school starts. So, um, but no, I didn't understand it at a, at a, at that capacity. I, I was a naive runner until I met Coach V Hill. And when I got to him, I was an insatiable learner. I just wanted to know as much as possible about the history of the sport, about, um, about, uh, the physiology and the psychology of it. And he was, he was certainly open to, uh, to teaching me that he had spent his, his entire life um, being a student of this sport and taught me it very quickly. What What do you think were the biggest lessons that you learned from him? I think hands down, the biggest lesson was um, was just having that, like you apply yourself physically in the sport. All of our training programs are probably very similar that we have our speed day and our long run day and uh, a day that we do a tempo run at like whether we're a miler or a, or a, um, or a marathoner, we, we dabble in, in those different energy systems. Um, but I think hands down, when you believe in that program, then all you have to do is work on your mental game. And so I trusted every, every workout he, he put me through and it was my job to get the best out of that workout. And I realized that my mental application either hindered or supported what I was trying to accomplish. Um, but the, this one moment stands out my very first cross country nationals, uh, under him, I had just been training with him for four months, solid, put in great miles, um, definitely felt the strongest version of myself ever. So I towed the line feeling true confidence for the very first time in my life. And as opposed to just hoping my talent would, would carry me through. And so really felt confident. And within the first 30 seconds, I went from confident to absolutely crushed. And I spent the whole race, people passing me. And I ended up in like 37th place or something and held up my appearances at the finish line. But then when I got back to my hotel room, I bawled my eyes out, just completely disappointed. That similar feeling to the Foot Locker National Championships, just feeling like I a, a complete failure. And why did I try this professional running anyway? Um, I should have stuck to baking and um, and 
and my parents came to my door and my dad said, oh, you should be proud. And I'm like, well, yeah, I don't feel proud. I feel very far from proud. And my mom said, well, we're proud of you. And I thought to myself, well, I don't care. Like, who cares? I don't care that you're proud of me. Um, I'm disappointed in myself. And then Coach Veal came to the door and he said, I'm so glad you're disappointed because it means you care. It means that you want more out of yourself. You expected more out of yourself. So damn it, you get your shoes back on, your training shoes back on on Monday and get back to work. And then he threw out like Rome wasn't built in a day, which would have been a cliche that just passed me by. But the thought that he the the thought that disappointment could mean I cared instead of meaning that I was a failure was a huge learning point in in my career and just a reboot that that failures are our springboard for growth and figure out how to get stronger and for me it was just continuing doing doing what I was doing I had four great months of training in but a year would be much better and two years and then a decade. That's how you, that's how you build, um, build yourself more enduring and, and faster. So it was a really critical moment in not being defined by that disappointment by, but letting it um, help me grow from there on out. Well, Dana, it's, it's pretty amazing to hear you, you, you talk about this now, because when I think about you, I think of you as someone who sort of is in it for the long haul and knows how to maximize your effort over, you know, months and years of training and to think that sort of when you started, I mean, I was just reading the excerpt for your book about it was like, just run as hard as you can out of fear of losing. And you were caught up in the wins and the losses instead of sort of personal best is shocking to me. You did obviously go on to become a very good cross country runner, winning what, eight or nine U.S. titles. Incredible stuff. But take people back when you got out of, out of college. I mean, you were a good college runner. You were the NCAA runner up at least once, I think, in cross country, right? Once in cross country, once in indoor track. So what were your PRs at the time? Did you get a shoe contract? Like how much money were you making? Like just, I mean, maybe you can't reveal exactly because these, I don't know if the confidential agreements still exist 25 years later, but like give people an idea. I don't think people, you know, the younger viewers may not understand. I think it's, it's changed a lot. You know, nowadays there's so many groups bidding on people that it's a lot different than it right. Was. I think it was. I think it was like the Alan Webb effect, wasn't he? One of the first people to get this distance runners to get a six figure contract right out of high school and um, and really uh, put the put the shoe companies in positions to to follow suit with with future stars. But when I was when I was graduating college, um, I had an okay career. I I had nine SEC nine SEC championships. That's probably more than okay. I think most people would say that. Yeah. So, but to, but when I was graduating from college, I felt like a complete failure. So I think runners, we can be our, our greatest critics, but what I've learned is when we can be our best cheerleaders is when we, we get the best out of ourselves. And so when I was graduating from college, I basically begged coach Veal to take me on because he was only coaching men at the time. And he was, um, he had a Reebok contract at the time. He's now, uh, ASICs, luckily, luckily for me, but he was, um, he was a Reebok, uh, coach at the time. And so I got shoes and I got a uniform to, to run in. And then I finally won after getting 37th place in my first U.S. cross country championships. I won the next year because I was, um, cause it lit a fire under me for 365 days. 
And, um, and after winning, I just found recently the letter I wrote to Mark Mastelier, who was a, a great miler. And when he was in high school, he was the um, athlete marketing manager at Reebok at the time. And I just found the letter I wrote to him begging me for $1,000 a month. And so I did, I got a, I got a $12,000, $12,000 a year contract that was th- that went for three years and um, and I worked in a cafe to supplement um, to supplement my income and uh, and be able to pay rent and um, and once I well once I got that contract I was able to cut back on my waitressing hours so I could devote more time to rest and that's what I did I exchanged a couple shifts during the week to be able to go home and take a nap after practice instead of standing on my feet and serving bad coffee in the cafe so it was it's. Times have definitely changed, but I also believed that at the time that you work to you work to 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 reap the rewards for it, and so I I was totally fine doing that. I wanted to to prove myself strong and enduring, and um and then get paid to to continue on. So when did you become a full time runner, professional runner? Um, I would say a year and a half after college, because once I. Once I started um, winning national championships and um, and and being an Olympic hopeful going into the year 2000, um, I was winning races and able to able to to put some money on the table, even getting appearance fees over in Europe, which um, doesn't really happen that much anymore. And what were your college? Do you remember your college track PRs? I don't remember. I I mean, I have some I have some uh, some scrapbooks up way up high on the bookcase that would probably show some of them, but, um, maybe, yeah, I don't even know. 1540 something maybe in the 5k. I don't know. Uh, our, our results database tell a stoppage of that. It starts in 97. So that would have been your first year as a professional. Yeah. And they, they show a 421, 1543. And those obviously quickly went down. Um, you, I think at one point, right, had the American record in the 5,000, 1451, picked up the 10,000, 3050, and then, of course, the also got the U.S. half marathon record of 67.34 and then the 219.36, which still standing here. Here we are 14 years later. Yeah, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. It's been an honor to – it's been an honor to have the – to have the record, I I think that I I can't wait for someone to break it, and I think we're getting to the time where where someone will because of the depth of American distance running and and also super shoes. But the um, if we if I look back on it, the record was really only important during that marathon buildup when I was trying to break. I think it was two thousand three when I was going after Joan Benoit Samuelson's record. Um, and the record was important in that buildup. It was important on the day that I that things came together and I could finally break it. But since then, it's been it's been up for grabs. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, you you broke it for the first time in London, two thousand three, with uh, two twenty one sixteen, and now you've held it for seventeen years and counting. Did you think that you would hold it for this long? Definitely not. I, I I pictured it something like the the four minute mile. Like once you break two hours and twenty minutes, a lot of Americans are going to know that they can also do it, and so we would see an influx of people doing that. Um, similar to the four minute mile, when once Roger Bannister was able to do that, it seemed like that was everybody's belief that oh, I probably have that in me too. So um, so I, I am surprised it's lasted that long, but I think um, I think very soon we'll we'll see that that. Um, 
that barrier, 220 barrier being broken repeatedly by Americans and certainly some, um, some, uh, some new names on the leaderboards of, of American records. Like Molly Huddle breaking my American record in the half marathon a couple of years ago at Houston. It was, so, I was there that day. I was leading a group for, um, for an Olympic trials qualifying time. And, um, and so my husband rode the bike backwards, um, backwards on the course and told me that Molly had, had broken the record. And I was so thrilled, um, that it was her. Cause I, I really, um, I really admire her work ethic. I admire her range in, um, in the track and, um, and then moving up into the half marathon and marathon distance. And I, really want to make sure as it's, it's not for me to, to decide, but I really want the, these records to go to clean athletes, to people that I, that I hands down know are clean. So I was happy that it was Molly who broke the record. Let's pause for a moment and give a shout out to the sponsor of this week's podcast, thefeed.com. They've got you covered. Need something for your running? Want to take your running to the next level? Go there. You can get the Martin sports drink. You can get a PR lotion even an AeroFit respiratory muscle training device. Pretty cool stuff. They've also got some COVID-19 stuff. How about an immunity boosting pack or even their BLDG active antimicrobial hand and face spray. So check it out. Go to thefeed.com slash let's run. Again, thefeed.com slash let's run and you'll save 15% on your entire order. And while you're on the internet, why don't you check out the letsrun.com shoe site. Go to letsrun.com slash shoes. And you can find the best prices and the best reviews. If you don't need to buy shoes, how about you review a shoe and help somebody else out? Thanks so much for supporting us. Well, you mentioned that there are several women, you know, now running fast times. There's a few in the in the low 220s. Back when you were doing that, though, that wasn't the case really in the United States. You were kind of leading the charge. And I'm wondering two things. First of all, sort of how did you... Did you envision when you started out like that you could get to a level where you're winning major marathons, where you're running 219? And how, sort of how did you mentally think that was possible or did you when you started? And then what was it also like just being kind of the only woman at that level in the United States at the time? Yeah, it's, that's a great question because um, because I think every time I finished a race, I would just think of the very next goal. So here I, um, I remember very clearly finishing the Olympics in 2004 and being like, oh my gosh, I haven't. I have an Olympic medal around my neck and I have never won a race. I have never won a marathon. So it was my next goal. Like I have to win a marathon. So I went to Chicago and it was the year, Robert, I think it was your brother who paced Paula that, that day. Um, um, when I think it was the year before Paula had broken the world record or maybe it was the year after. I can't remember what, what year she, she broke it in, in Chicago. Um, but I went to Chicago and ended up winning, um, winning Chicago in 2005 for my very first marathon and uh, very first marathon win. And then it was after that wanting to get faster. So then going to London and trying to break 220. So the goals just kind of jump up, but then there's a point in your, in your aging self where, um, where you don't really know what the next goal is. Like now mine is to, is to get my six star for the world marathon majors. Cause I know I'm not going to run 219 or 218. Um, so, so your goals have to have to change. And that was also a critical time in, in my career is realizing that my fastest days are behind me and why am I still doing this? And I still do it because, 
um, it really helps keep that mental side of me sharp. And, um, and I love exerting myself. So I exert myself now in a very similar fashion. It's just not as fast as it what will marathon majors do you still have to run Berlin. And last year I was training for Berlin and was up at, we had a campsite about a mile up, um, up the road from our house at this lake. And I, um, and I was cooking dinner for friends and I tripped over a friend's dog and broke my ankle. Oh no, the Chris Selinsky injury. Yes. And, um, and, and so I didn't know it was broken. I trained on it for, for a week and a half. And finally, uh, during a long run, I was at mile 13 and I just stopped and told, told Andrew, my husband and, and coach of the Mams track club, like, I, I think something's severely wrong here. Like my whole leg started tightening up and it turned out it was broken. So postponed Berlin to this year. And because I practiced silver linings, I thought, well, I guess I'm going to still be running competitively for another year. And, um, and so then Berlin this year, and now, now I'm going to be at it another year. <laughs> They're finding a way to extend your career here. Yes, I am going to get that finisher's medal. So and then you can go, but then you'll be pretty close to 50. Because I think we're almost the same age. So then you can you might as well just do it when you're 50 and then get like the 50 plus record. I don't know what that is. Maybe, probably Joni has it, right? Like Joan has everything. Yes. She'll, she'll have it up until she's like, she'll have the 90 year old record and the hundred year old record. <laughs> yes. And so I already say I'm almost 50. It, my, it irks my husband so badly. When people ask how old you are, I say almost 50, 47, you round up. <laughs> I may have to apologize because I don't know if John had a scripted order that he wanted to go and everything. And I just sort of jumped around straight up to the marathon, but you talked about the importance of having different goals. So you get out of college, you know, it sounds like you're focused on U.S. cross for the first four months, and then you came back for another year. And then, like, did you, was it just naturally there was a set of goals, like, okay, I want to make my first Olympic team and then do well at world cross. You know, you got those silver medals in 2002 and 2003. Um, like, like, how did you – did it just sort of just naturally evolve or did you sit down at the beginning of your career and sort of think this is the way it was going to go out? Um, Coach Veal had a lot to do with it. He, he was very cross country focused. He coached Pat Porter who won, I believe 10 U S cross country titles. Um, I loved cross country. So it was very easy for me to authentically follow Coach Veal on that, on that path. And as a distance runner, it's so easy to run, cross country in the fall and then turn around and, and do a, a track season in the spring and the summer. So, um, and then even throw some road racing, road racing in, um, so that you can pay your bills. Uh, and so cross country to me was just a benchmark for progress all the time. And, um, both at the national level, like trying to, to, um, trying to keep my, my, uh, cross country title and then going to the world championships and moving up from 32nd place to 21st place to 11th place. And I never got that number one spot, but, um, but was runner up twice, uh, one year to Paula Radcliffe. And then the next year to, was it Gerard Tutulu? I think, um, who was a 10,000 meter track specialist. Um, I was completely, um, mad losing to Paula because I crossed the finish line and felt like I still had a lot of energy left. But then the next year I decided I was just going to go from the gun and not dork around. And, um, and Gerard Tulu sat on me and out kicked me at the very finish. And I felt better with that because I was exhausted at the end of that race. So I think a lot of times, um, 
uh, wins and losses you, you surprise you at how they resonate. Because as long as I know I got the best out of myself on the race course and my legs feel numb and buckly at the finish line, I can be proud of the effort. I also read in the 2000 World Cross Country Championships, you got stung by a bee in the back of your throat in the first 100 meters and you still yeah. finished 12th. What happened there? I I had just given a pep talk to the team on the starting line with our hands in the middle saying, when it gets tough out there, you have six other women relying on you to get to that finish line as fast as possible. So no matter what happens, you fight until you finish, until you finish this race. We need you. We wanted to get on the met on the awards podium. We ended up, um, well, so 400 meters into the race, if that a bee flew into my mouth and stung my, the only reason why I know what this punching bag in the back of your throat is called, um, is because I was stung there is your uvula. It stung me and I spit the bee out, um, hopefully dead. Um, and my whole throat closed up. So we were on this circuit course and I remember being on the back, on the back circuit, um, with a lap to go. And, um, and I passed out, like, I didn't remember doing the entire loop and completely passed out because I was, um, hypoxic, like lost, lost oxygen. But when my head hit the ground, it like knocked me back to my senses. So I got up and kept running. And at that point I was in like 13th place. I was with in the lead pack and I was in 13th place and I caught one person, I think, and ended up in 12th, um, it's hard once the sprint starts to to make any ground on on your competition. So I finished the race and I was totally upset about it. And Ray Flynn, my age, longtime agent, came over. And I think he's he's still the um, Irish record holder, Ray Flynn, still the Irish record holder. In the um, mile. In the 1,500 yeah, think, meters. Yeah. Or maybe 15 as well, yeah. yeah. Maybe both. Um, but he said, Oh my gosh, are you okay? And I had, they gave me like a Benadryl shot in my, in my leg and in the medical tent. And he says, we were so worried about you. The big jumbotron at the finish line kept playing my fall in slow motion. So my cheeks were like flapping. And then I, my, he said, my eyes just like popped open and I just started running again. But they, he said they must have played it, replayed it a dozen times at the, at the finish line. Um, but then, so I went from hugely disappointed in in the outcome of the race to finding out that the team had got second place. So I went from a very low place to a very high place um, immediately, knowing that the the fight that I that I um, maintained was certainly worth it. So um, it was a, it was an incredible day, um, but it was it was it was disappointing. Um, personally, but as a team to be able to, to get on the podium and, and separate Ethiopia and Kenya, um, on the podium was pretty exciting. Yeah. And you were, you were the top finisher on the U S team that year. And I mean, that's, you lived up to your pre-race speech. I think you'll, we can say that. Say, but that was the first thing that, that I thought of like, oh my gosh, I've got to stop. No, I can't stop. Like I, (laughs) the team's depending on me. So I, I had to eat my words. Let me come in and put and make Jonathan Galt's normal role of making a factual correction. It was not Dark Tertulli who won. It was Worknesh Kadani. Kadani. Worknesh Kadani. Pretty good. She's a 1433 woman who got a second, ran 3007 to get the silver medal in that year in the 10,000. I've, I've lost to Dark Tertulli also. <laughs> Let it be known. <laughs> Actually, John, I wonder, and she's married to Gabra Gibbermarian. Is that the only couple in the world that they both won a world cross country title? Maybe. Anyways. There's some super crazy married married running couples. Speaking of married running couples, I guess 
what was it like to be part of the Mammoth Light Track Club? I mean, you had Meb Kafleski, you know, training up there. Also Ryan Hall. I mean, really, the, the three of you guys together, you know, two men and one woman, were just sort of redefining what was was possible for an American. How much were you all on the same plan, interacting together? How did that work? We, I mean, we're a pretty tight knit group um, from the inception in 2001 when we um, when we all moved to Mammoth to to live and train. Um, and gosh, I miss them so much because they hold me accountable to get out the door at eight o'clock in the morning and to be able to push push through the miles and get competitive and feisty on Green Church Road when we're doing tempo runs. It's so such a um, a wonderful camaraderie. And, um, and so during this time of, of not meeting, I've, I've missed them so much. But from the very beginning, we even had Obdi up here the first few years that the uh, Mammoth Track Club was, um, was launched. Uh, gosh, trying to think of, um, even, even Milers, some great Milers, um, Anna Willard and, uh, Morgan Euseni. Uh, Jen Rines, who's a three-time Olympian. So we've had a great group up here and we do. We, we meet up at, at eight o'clock. My favorite workouts are the ones that the coaches stagger. So the slowest person will go out on a, on an eight mile tempo run. And then a minute later, um, a next wave of people will go and then it ends with the fastest person. So I would guess for more than a decade and a half, I would turn behind me to Meb and say, catch me if you can, and then bolt off the, the starting line and into my tempo run. And you just hear him. He's got like the, the most childlike giggle. So I'd hear him giggling as I'm sprinting down the road. Um, so we we make training. It's, it's intense, but we also make it a lot of fun and, um, and very supportive of one another. So what was the record between you and Meb in those tempo runs? In wins and losses, I won, of course. <laughs> if you interview Meb, Meb he'll tell you differently. <laughs> Was the plan to have the, the, the slower people catch you at the end or it might be make sense to have you catch them in the middle so then you have somebody to chase? Right. It, it worked out that like within the last mile, you're like gritting your teeth trying to get that person in front of you and you're looking over your shoulder because you hear footsteps of, of someone else. So it does it does kind of mimic a race scenario quite a bit that you're you're kind of being hunter and hunted at the same time. Well, one race we talked, we touched on it earlier. You win in Chicago in 2005. That was a big goal for you. It was your first marathon victory. And I was rewatching some of this race today because you mentioned on our message board Q and A with our readers that it was also the toughest race you'd ever want run. And the reason why I think if you look at the splits, people can see at 35k you're on pace to run 218.52. It's a big personal best. It would have been an American record. And then your next 5K, you run in 1750, which was over a minute slower. And right now you can, looks like you're getting flashbacks to sort of collapsing, but you, you still hold on and win the race. I mean, how hard were you hurting? What are your memories from that day? And you only won by five seconds. So you, how, how scary were you? Five seconds. And at, at one point I had over a minute lead on Constantita Dita of Romania, who went on to win um, Olympic gold in 2008 in the marathon. Um I, it was, it wasn't, it was a weird day. My, my coach Jovi Hill 
he preaches emotional control all the time. That's what the marathon is all about. Just emotional control, get on pace and go. But I had a flame under me that day and I was going to win that race from the gun. And um, when Constantina was with me at 5k and 10k and 15k, I thought I got to shake her. So I just kept throwing in surges, like everything I know not to do in a marathon. And uh, so despite pulling off the win, she was, when I when we rounded the corner to on Columbus Avenue for the finish, I looked over my shoulder and saw her within strides and she was coming like a freight train. And I just willed my body to the finish. I actually blacked out at the finish line. And there's like, a, it's the, the only race that I actually, um, like lost my senses afterwards. I, I couldn't have gone. If the race was a meter longer, I would have lost it. And if it was a meter shorter, I might have been better off <laughs> physically and, and mentally. But I, I literally blacked out at the finish line and could hear things around me, but couldn't see anything. Wow. Which wasn't, that's not very healthy. It's not healthy to run, run to that point. <laughs> no, I mean, it shows you how hard you, you were pushing at, at the end. And was it just like, so you were just trying to beat her? Like, did you have a time in mind or you were just like, oh, I'm tired of him, having her around her. Like, I want her off the back. Yeah. I mean, I just want, I wanted to win a race. That was my goal was to win. And she was there and she was going to ruin my plans. So I just, I just kept throwing these irrational surges, which use up too much glycogen. And um, so it, it defies everything a marathon should be. And I was able to, I was able to hold off for the, for the win, but, um, but it wasn't the, the prettiest of races and it was certainly the most painful. Yeah, well, your, your splits were 109.16 for the first half and then 112.09 for the second half for a winning time of 221. Yeah, 221.25. And um, and then when you look at my, uh, my fastest marathon, my first half and my second half are exactly the same to the second. Really? Yes. Wow. So how do you prefer to run? Even split, negative split, or Probably not positive split, I'm guessing. Even, yeah, yeah. Positive split is a bad, is usually the sign of a bad day. Um, unless you're like shaking hands and kissing babies the second half. Um, so even paced, I mean, that's physiologically the best way for any of us to run is, is an even place, is an even pace when we are most efficiently using, using our, um, our fat stores and our, um, aerobic capacity. Um, even paced is the best way. So you go from that to the next spring to running the 219, which, I mean, I guess many would argue are your, are your two best marathons back to back. And then um, I think later that year, you, what, you ran New York, right? And we're like sixth or seventh or something like that, maybe. But anyways, you got ranked number one in the world for, for that year for the marathon by Track and Field News. Yeah, John, when he was preparing for this inter podcast, he found an interview, I guess, and I wrote, I actually wrote an article on you. I guess we talked in 2007 and I asked you about this amazing 2006 season. And, and you said at the time, I was actually really disappointed with my whole 2006 season. And I forgot also during that year, you set a U.S. half marathon record. So um, and, and your explanation at the time, and I'll link to this article in the show notes. And also, by the way, John referenced it. But if you haven't seen it, Dina went on the message board and answered a ton of your questions and a thread entitled Dina Castor and Jim Ryan answered the questions about their careers right here in LRC. I'll link to that. Those answers, by the way, Dina, were amazing. Phenomenal. So. Must, be, must read. <laughs> if you have not read those people, you need to read them. But you said, you know, that the 2006 season was disappointing. Now, this is in the middle of your career at the time. And, and sort of your, your explanation was you kind of 
had a rush start to the year and we kind of felt like you were forcing everything. And the only time it went well was when you ran the half marathon American record and the marathon Mar Mar American record, the rest of this year didn't feel good, but looking back on it, I mean, do you have a totally different perspective on that time? I mean, I was looking at it like the rest of your career, you never ran faster than 227. Right. So you, this was sort of peak Dina, but was it maybe a sign that your body was about to give out or, or how, what do you think of that time now? Yeah. 13 years I mean, I, I can feel it so clearly that the disappointment in it, and it's because I'm insatiable. It's, and it's also because I've always believed um, under the tutelage of coach V Hill, that nothing should be career capping, that resiliency is not just bouncing back from, from poor performances, but seeing in your best performances, how nothing's really perfect. And how do I, how do I continue to perfect this? Um, even though I know perfection is unobtainable, but um, but to keep perfecting and um, and growing. And I remember so well being at training camp in the in February in Palo Alto. And because we were supposed to have a terrible winter here, but turns out the winter was beautiful here, and I love being home. Um, so I'm at this. I'm renting this house in Palo Alto that has a rat somewhere in it that I can't trap because there's poop on my bed when I come back from the from being gone for the weekend and something is eating my uh, English muffins in the kitchen every night. And so I have to throw the whole pack away. And then I go to the bakery and get more the next day only and put them in the fridge, but then it gets into chips or something else I have out. So I was just like grossed out by Palo Alto <laughs> I, um, and it showed in my training there. And so, um, so Terrence, my coach at the time, Terrence Mahan, Jen Ryan's husband, he sent me home from training camp. He was like, this isn't for you. I think I need you to go home. So my husband drove to Palo Alto and picked me up and brought the dog up to me. And we came home together. And, um, and then my training went really well in that condensed buildup up to London, Berlin and London. So, um, so it was very imperfect, but again, I think, um, the, the reality of being challenged at the beginning of the year really made me when I came home and I was um, mad from being sent home from training camp because I was a, being a prima donna. Um, I, I think that it made me really focus for that short amount of time and get the best out of myself um, so that I can be prepared when I got to Berlin and London. So nobody got to see that side of me <laughs> except for my teammates. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine how angry I'd be if I had like some animal just coming around taking craps on my bed and eating my food. That would, it's going to be so frustrating. So gross. It was yeah. so gross. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people that live in Palo Alto live much better lives than that. <laughs> it's a very beautiful place. Yeah. No, I've only had positive experiences when I've gone out there. Yeah. But, uh, so I had just a few sort of unrelated questions uh, to what we've been, well, it's running related, but it's not exactly, you know, conversation related. Favorite surface to race on, road, track, or cross country? Oh man, it, it changes. But now I would say road. But it's I've I've liked I've liked the others at different points in my career. Why road? Um, I just love that pounding. I love that feeling of just slapping the pavement, and I love hearing that cadence, that pop, 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 pop. And then um, I'm a very auditory runner. Um, which I learned about myself in writing my book. Um, when you have to think about everything you're thinking and feeling in a certain in a certain run, and I realize it's probably why I don't run with music because I like to 
to hear the cadence of my step and my breathing. And then when I fatigue, it goes back to that sound of trying to keep that sound in my head at the, at the proper rhythm. So do you feel like you sound different running when you're tired versus when you're, you know, rolling? Yes. Clunk, 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 clunk. As to, as opposed to pop, 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 pop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel, I get this. I can think of it now. Like when I'm out on a run, you know, when you're flying along, it, it's great. But yeah, if you, struggling, you're kind of dragging a little bit. And that's the hook of running. I think when we get into that, into that, that state of, of flow or runner's high, however you want to define it, or those days where you just feel like you can stay out forever. They're so far and few between, but we lace up our shoes every day in hopes that's the day it's going to be there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's such a great feeling. I think any runner can relate if you're lucky enough to have felt it uh, on a run. What about favorite race from your career? Oh man. The one I haven't run yet. Um, like I, there's just always other things. I want to go run a half marathon in Iceland. I want to go do the Marathon du Medoc in the south of France, where instead of Gatorade or Powerade, they have uh, the wineries come out and actually give you samples of wine and have hors d'oeuvres along the way. So that would be like the marriage of my of my two favorite worlds of of um, cooking and and drinking wine and and running and do it all in the span of a marathon would be heaven on earth to me. Oh, well, we have to add that to the, you have to be a mile and now you have the wine marathon. Yeah. And we put on, hopefully we'll do it this year. We put on a beer run during our Oktoberfest up here in Mammoth. This will be the third year if it still goes on. And does that involve drinking on the course? So what is, what is a beer run? How does it go? It does. It's um, Michelob Ultra is our sponsor. So it's a can of Michelob Ultra. Um, each you do a, a lap around our pedestrian village. And so three laps around the village is exactly a K. So you chug a chug a beer at the start and then do one at the transition point each time and then finish. Gotcha. Yep. And there's a lot of trash cans along the route. That's good. Yeah. Imagine it produces a lot of litter there. Because so. it is at 8,000 feet altitude as well. So that adds a little a little burn. Oh, yeah. And also that makes, I mean, it's easy to get uh, wasted at 8,000 feet as well. So <laughs> that is true. Yeah. I guess good thing you're using Michelob Ultra. Um, yeah. You said on our message board in the Q&A, if you could race any marathon, you chose Abebe Vakila, the legendary Ethiopian double Olympic champion. Now, first question of that, is this the Abbe Bikila without shoes in Rome or with shoes in Tokyo 64? Which version would you want? Uh, without shoes. Without shoes. I I just don't know. Um, I feel like nobody really knows a lot about him. And I would love to just have a conversation, like just just talk running and, and talk life and see what what motivates him and what his um what his passion and purpose is in, in running and, and racing. So I hands down because so many people, you could just do research and learn about them, but I would love to really have a conversation with him and find out more about his character. Yeah. I mean, he's the guy you talk to any Ethiopian, Haile Gebre Selassie, Kanisa Bekele, all those guys, they all look up to Abebe Bekele because he just, you know, he, he was one of the first great African distance runners, but also double Olympic champion, just pushing the sport forward really incredible guy was the and very very philanthropic he he brought all of his earnings back to the village and made a difference there so um so in not only made change but inspired inspired people that came came after him yeah what was that what motivated you or inspired you about him or what particularly really excited you about Bakila? 
Uh, yeah, just because he's he's one of the first greats. Um, it, it could have also been Fidipides, but um, but he he's he's more obtainable, I think, in in character because we don't know if Fidipides was actually a real person or not. Um, uh, whether that story is is fiction or or um, or truth. So Abibi Bikila to me is the is really the first great marathoner. And we also someone also asked you, you know, you were named the Let's Run women's goat uh by our readers but i think someone asked you if you had a vote you would have voted for joan benoit samuelson full stop why, why joni um because i think as far as abibi bikila being um being like the first great marathoner i consider joan as the first great american marathoner although a lot of women before her paved the way for for her to become a star in 1984 when she won the first gold medal in the women's olympic marathon um, so she has Nina Kusick and, and Catherine Switzer and Bobby Gibbs to thank, but, um, but she was the, was the person that I was watching at 11 years old come into the Coliseum and waving her flag to claim, to claim, um, Olympic victory. And I would say it's not very coincidental that I became a runner that year. And, um, and so she's just always inspired me. Um, not just because she's been a world record holder, an American record holder and a gold medalist, but, um, but also because she continues to this day to give back to the sport. She's at the races all the time, um, inspiring people, sharing stories, still conjuring up these crazy goals. She figures out some math problem in her head to make this next marathon matter because of her age or dividing by her PR. Like she just comes up with these crazy stories to continue getting out there and pushing herself. So I admire her in a lot of ways. And she's an amazing gardener. One of my favorite stories, um, gardening stories with Joan was showing up in, she was just checking into the hotel in New York City during New York City Marathon weekend. And we were leaving the hotel to go to dinner. And my daughter was very, she gets very angry when she's hungry. And she kept tugging on us like, come on, I'm hungry. And we were talking to to Joan and, and her husband, Scott. And Joan says, oh, and where your water bottle typically is in the side of your backpack, she pulled out a whole head of celery and said, I just picked this from my garden before I left. And she broke off a piece of celery and gave it to Piper. And Piper gave her a look like she was from another planet and then just walked away eating the celery. It was so, so classic Joan. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Traveling with a head of celery where her water bottle should be. Are there any other runners like, you know, obviously Joan inspired your career. What about women who are competing now that you're, do you have a favorite runner or favorite runners that you like to watch? Oh my gosh, my dream came true in Atlanta to just sit in front of that pack of amazing runners and think to myself, oh my gosh, like we have in this, in this, in this tight pack of, of fit women, we had Olympians and American record holders and the number one seed is the fastest debut. And it was like you could just go across and just go on and on about every woman standing there. Um, I, I have a lot of favorites. I think Des Linden is a clear, is a clear, clear favorite of mine. Um, she stands uh, above, above a lot of women just because she's so approachable and funny and uh, her work ethic really shows through and her persistence and showing up to Boston each year. And um, whether she had a great buildup or a rocky one, she always showed up on the start line and gave her best and finally won. Um, so that's a real hero's story, I think. And it's something a lot of people can relate to just coming back and trying again. 
Um, Molly Huddle, I love Emma Bates. Um, she's a fellow ASICS athlete, but she's only run a few marathons and has done so well in all of them. I actually thought she looked the best with about a little less than 10K to go. I thought she looked better than any of the other women in the field. Um, but, you know, you can never predict these things. We're sending an amazing team to Tokyo next year. Six, um, six athletes who not only withstood the pressure of the Olympic trials and were able to, to overcome um, such a high stakes in that regard, but a hilly course on a windy day and that pavement was hard. Like in any real big city, the pavement is a little harder than, than in more rural, rural places, probably because of the, the sun and, and the packing down of, of traffic for over the years. But, um, but they, no matter, no matter the conditions they face in Tokyo, if it's, if it's, um, the competition or the weather, these athletes are going to nail it because they've already overcome so much to, to have made the team. Yeah, that was a great trial. So I remember Mike Smith, We I was interviewing him a few weeks ago, and he said, like, he wanted someone to just have a picture of that lead pack with maybe, like, you know, 10 miles to go or something, because just anyone who was anything, anyone from this generation, they're all up there, and it was, you know, just so deep and so such an impressive field. Yeah, it was awesome. It was really awesome. It's interesting, because the one question I asked, one, I, my brother obviously isn't here. His wife had a baby. Baby's healthy, everybody, but he's not on the podcast today. But he texted me. I said, what question should we ask Tina? He says, well, I'm worried that the U.S. women are, are going to enter a phase now where we're not competitive anymore. I said, what are you talking about? But he's, maybe it's the lack of sleep, but this is what he texted back. <laughs> but it was basically like, he's like, look, with the super shoes, a lot of women now are running 217, 218, and we don't have anyone even close to Gina's time. So you know, do you think that the U.S. women can be competitive on the roads, you know, like you were? Yeah, I do. I do think so, because because everyone's everyone's in that boat. Everybody, everybody has the benefits um, of of these shoes if they continue to to allow them. So it is evening the the playing field in that regard. Um, but I I think women's distance running right now, because it's so deep in and of itself, that that is going to get the cream to rise to the top within the United States. And those people are going to be able to compete on the international stage just the same. So, so I, I don't, I don't think we're going to slow down. I think if anything, um, seeing the, the depth of these Olympic trials makes me hopeful that, um, that this is just the beginning of, of even, even deeper fields in the future. I mean, I, you said earlier, you're surprised your record stood so long, but I guess I'm surprised maybe just because the super shoes exist. But if you look at it, I mean, you pretty much have to be able to run under 31 minutes, I would think, to break 220. And there's still only five U.S. women that have ever done that. So there aren't that many potential candidates right now to, to to knock off your time. Yeah, I mean, maybe I think I joked on the on the website. I I might have edited it after after I typed it, but that the next phase is is to get away with having little fans in your shoes because it would keep your feet cool and the jet propulsion really isn't that big of a deal. <laughs> so it just depends on how much we can get away with with materials in in shoes these days. Yeah, well, we have. I mean, World Athletics they finally introduced some regulations uh, earlier this year, so. The- was it the like stack height? Yeah, forty millimeters. Earlier, you you talked about losing an American record. I think to was it Shalane Molly Huddle, and you're happy to lose to someone that you knew knew was clean. It was interesting. So the same time you're carrying on this Q and A on 
much, Ron. And again, the responses are amazing. If you haven't read them, people, you have to read them. But somebody, I guess, at that time or maybe a day later starts a thread. Do you think Dina Castro was clean? And I don't know. Maybe this is a younger person. I can see how if you're born, you know, if you're 20 years old, you look back and you hear like, hey, there wasn't even an EPO test. Lots of people were an EPO. How could she be competitive if she wasn't an EPO? And I understand the logic of him or, him or her posting that question. But to me, Dina, first of all, I've got your back. Like, People always ask me, you know, behind the scenes, do you think this person's clean? Do you think this person's dirty? Sometimes I'm like, oh, I'd really have to think about that one. If my life depended on it, I'd have to go A or B. With you, this would be a no hesitation. I mean, I, clean. <laughs> Dina was clean. I don't have any doubt about that. So, but you you put on there about somebody was just asking, like, they weren't even asking about you in that Q&A, they were just saying, it's really tough to be a fan to wake up and think all these people I was excited about, so many of them have turned out to be frauds. And what you wrote is amazing. And let me read some of this. Um, you know, it said, it's so disappointing to be awed by a great performance. And, and, and then you said, one thing is certain, not everyone cheats. Those who think that they are, that they are the only ones, they do that to justify it themselves. And then you said, Coach Vio calls this the death sentence as if the cheater never lived in the sport, and I agree with that. As a sport, we are too easy on athletes to make excuses or justifications to serve a couple of years of bans as peanuts. I've lost to cheaters. I've heard every justification when samples test positive or drug passports are compromised, and I cast serious judgment, not on those just who get caught, but on those who push the envelope on supplementation. Cheaters are quick to justify taking something natural to create similar responses to PEDs. If you're not going to tell your grandma, tweet about it, or tell Lewis Johnson – when the NBC microphone is broadcasting your post-race interview, you are shady. And you are shady is written in all caps. I love that. I mean, you're going farther. farther. I mean, that's my view on Alberto Salazar. Like, to me, his ban is unsatisfying because he didn't actually get banned for doping any athletes. But I'm like, look, folks, we all at least need to admit he long ago forgot the, the point of the rules and the spirit of the rules. Um, so I thought that was amazing. And then you also told an anecdote. Maybe tell him – tell viewers now about the first time you lined up for a diamond league race on the track, how shocked you were about what happened in the mix zone. Right. It was, it was Dean, Dean Gollin. Um, it was my first 5,000 over there is their um, Olympic stadium. It's just the crowds are electric. And I, so I like my, I think I even said the hair on my, on my hands or my arms were standing up as I was lacing up my shoes. Cause you could just feel the energy of the crowds. And I was super psyched to, to, to race. But as I'm lacing up my shoes, I looked around and it was everybody except for Sherry Kanaw, Rich Kanaw, the Atlanta Track Club's wife, and Amy Rudolph, um, who was maybe the five, she might have had the 5,000 record at the time, um, 5,000 meter record, American record. They, the three of us were the only people not puffing on inhalers. And I thought to myself, how could the best in the world be asthmatic? And, and this is, this is the problem with the sport is that when you have guidelines, people are going to see how close they can get to those guidelines. And like, I'm, I'm such a purist that I don't even think people should take supplements, that there is plenty of great nutrients in the foods that we eat, that if I'm low in vitamin D, like I was in 2008, I researched what foods were high in vitamin D and ate the heck out of pickled herring, which is so foul. And, and farm fresh eggs because the yolks have high amount of vitamin D in them and organic leafy greens because they have the most vitamin D bioavailability of, of any vegetables. So, 
you just do the research. And as an athlete, you should be getting the purest form of everything into your body. But food does that for you, not pills. And, um, and so I have a very strong opinion about it because everybody has their own line to draw. They're like, okay, well, I take a multivitamin and then I do this and this, but, um, but then when it gets time to competition, I back off a little or I, um, I, you know, whatever, whatever their, their strategy is. But if you're justifying what's in your medicine cabinet, you're missing the point. You know, you know what I mean? There's, it's, um, um, it's to me, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have to justify what you're, what you're taking in any regard because your body is a clean machine and it's going to operate the best off of a clean level. And I think I added, I might've added, um, to my response to that gentleman that my very first, um, response when I hear, um, when I hear that someone tested positive, um, cause he was asking like, he feels disappointed or duped and he's, it's hard to believe in the sport when there's a good performance, when months later it comes out that the person was cheating. My very first response is feeling total sadness. And the sadness comes, um, in multiple levels because the, the race director who I'm, I'm friends with a lot of race directors out there from, from competing over the years. I feel bad for them. I feel bad for the sponsors that put so much money into the sport only to get a headline like this. Um, but, even more so, I feel sad for the person cheating. And I think it's because I, I feel fortunate to have always been around people who believe in me and who, um, who make me know that I have the capability to do great things. When I set out and want to be an Olympian and want to break 15 minutes in the 5K, we get to work and start doing it because they believe my body is capable of doing it. And, and instead, when people go towards cheating, it's sad to me that they don't believe they can do it without, without compromising their health and well-being. Yeah, I think that's very well said. You also lose the ultimate gift of the sport. Like, to me, the gift of the sport is pursuing something and getting it and the, the gratification of that. The, the, um, and I'm very into like, your choices become your habits. So, so then if I'm looking at someone who's cheating, they're reinforcing that when life gets tough, we just cheat to get what you want. And they, you know, they don't just make those decisions in the silo of sport. They're going to do that in their, in their life whenever they get challenged by something. How can I get around this? How can I get out of this? How can I, how can I, um, cut this corner to get there faster, um, or to get higher or to get more money? And, um, and so they're really missing out on some of the greater gifts of the sport. I'm not saying they don't work hard because they do. They still work hard. Um, but my point is, um, and I put it there that, not everybody cheats and you shouldn't justify cheating yourself because you believe everybody is. I always wonder when a doper wins a race, how, you know, how do you, how do they celebrate that mentally? Like it can't feel the same as winning a race, knowing you did it the right way. I'm sure. Right. And then I, I get, so then I, I overthink this too, but then I think, you know what, maybe winning this race had nothing to do with pride and work ethic and making choices and defining your character um, um, maybe this person wanted to win the race so they can open up a hospital in, in their village in Africa. Like, you don't like, maybe it's just about money. Maybe it's just about getting the money so that they can go and, 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 um, and support their community. And, and so it's hard to, it's hard to judge the, the, 
the positive intention in that, but they're still stealing and cheating um, um, in the sport as a whole. They're stealing from the races, from the sponsors, from the other competitors. Um, and so that, that to me is, is still despicable, even though the intention is, is well, it's well intended. Well, that's one of the things in the message board, John, a lot of people used to say they would analyze people's celebrations to see who was doping or who wasn't. <laughs> and I, I think they could justify it though. You could justify a celebration if you justify it by saying everyone else is doing it, which, you know, I, I know is not true. I feel like the like the only time that's a val well it's never a valid explanation but like maybe Tour de France mid two thousands then that's actually true but these days it's it's certainly not the case I I'm certain there are athletes who make it to, you know Olympic final I get the poster's logic of oh everyone was doping how you compete but at the same time if you just want to use like logical arguments I mean the argument I always say is my brother wasn't even the best guy on our high school team he ran twenty eight flat so I can easily see you know, some American who's more talented than him running 27 flat, you know, like Chris Zelensky. And then I can easily see some African guy who was born into poverty and living in altitude his whole life or running 26, 30 or 20, which is kind of what happened. Now I'm not saying that everyone who's run 26, 20 or 26, 30 is clean. I'm just saying I can conceive of it. Um, but you know, it is. And then you can't take anyone's word for it. Like you shouldn't, you shouldn't take my word for it when I say I don't dope, but hopefully when I, tell you the reasons and my passion and my discipline in the sport, um, my opinion on, on dopers and cheaters, you get a better sense of, of, of the fact that I, that I ran and competed clean my entire career and continue to today. Um, because I remember Lance Armstrong, you mentioned the tour de France. No, I did not cheat. I did not dope. And then, and then Marion Jones, who was probably the most disappointing one in my family because we grew up watching her run in youth track. Um, to see, I remember on television specifically, and I was at my parents' house seeing a split screen of her adamant, adamantly denying doping. And then the next scene where she's crying remorseful and, and, um, um, wanting up to apologize to her family and fans. So. Yeah. That's what uh, David Epstein, the journalist who wrote sports gene and, and he's about about five years younger than me, but I asked, he helped break the Lance Armstrong story. And I said, what was the most shocking thing about it? He said, the most shocking thing to me was learning, you know, how old he was, 25, 30 years old, was learning that someone can look you flat in the eye and lie convincingly. And you, he's like, you know, I, I didn't realize at the time, I just out of college, you know, masterful lying at it. I mean, right. So, right. He's a, yeah, he's a good crook yeah. <laughs> or a bad one. He said on his podcast that he reads some stuff on Let's Run. So, Lance, if you are listening, we, we We'll let you have. We'll let you come onto the podcast. All right. Well, I think we've we're going to wrap this up in a minute here because we've been on for an hour. Dina, really generous of you to give us all this time. But one thing we haven't even mentioned this. I I can't believe I didn't even mention this in your introduction. Your Olympic bronze medal in Athens in two thousand four. I mean, I the idea. I can't believe it hasn't come up an hour into the podcast. But I need. We need to revisit this race and just tell me. You know, what are your memories from that day? Like you said on the message boards that your regret was actually you didn't go out a little harder and that, you you know, maybe you could have gotten the goal, which I think is a really interesting way to look at it. Right. And I, and I only, the only reason why I even admit that thinking is because we all think that way in our, our best races, we finish thinking, wow, you know, our PRs, we can think, wow, you know, I, I could have totally pushed a little harder in the middle of this race. Um, but maybe our, maybe our best days feel good because everything, everything's in line. But 
I do, I had such a conservative race strategy because when the buses dropped us off in the town of Marathon, it was 101 degrees. And, um, and I was really scared of the, of those, of those types of conditions. And even as early as 10 K women were peeling off to the side of the road and puking and like already feeling the, the stress of the heat. So, um, so I was really, really scared of the conditions and respectful of them. Um, just as you're respectful of 26.2 miles and the fact that anything can go right or wrong in the span of that distance, um, and I, I think I started picking picking it up a little a little too late in the game. I, I definitely felt it was the only marathon I've run that I felt I could have run longer. You know, every every marathon you're like, God, where's the finish line? Uh, but that one, I think I could have, I certainly could have run longer that day. So it tells me that I I didn't run hard enough in between. Well. Think bronze medal is still a, an incredible achievement, uh, right? And I celebrated it. It was my goal, so it was it was a celebration. But then when I'm looking around and seeing two girls puking on the track next to me, I'm like, wow, you know, I I feel fresh as a daisy here. Yeah, yeah. Where does that rank? I mean, if you had your list, what is your Dina? What is your greatest career accomplishment? Mm. Do you know that the race that I'm the most proud of was the 2015 Chicago Marathon when I broke the Masters American record? And the only reason why it was my best is because I had a terrible buildup. Race day wasn't going well. I missed my first water bottle. I got tripped. But um, in any one of those moments, weeks leading up to the race, I had terrible allergies that fall to the sagebrush that was blooming. I got the flu two weeks before the race. We had fires that summer and it and it um, threw off my training. I missed a few workouts because there was ash in the air. So just like a lot of things going wrong. And then the race itself, um, I think I could have felt fine making an excuse for myself and not getting to the start line or given up on my goal at any point in that race because it got hard um, or I, it got challenging. And whenever it did, I refocused and kept going. And I, and I still was able to to reach my goal of getting the American master's record. And I think it just, it was, it was a, um, it really reinforced everything I've worked for over the years of just cultivating a mind that was relentless and, and pursuant, um, no matter the circumstances. And that race embodied all of it because I could have, I could have, um, cut my, cut myself short, uh, many, many times leading up to the race and even in the race itself. 227, 47 and 42. Pretty incredible. So Dina, what do you think you can do at 40? You'll be 48 next year in Berlin. Yeah. Do you have a time goal? Um, not yet. I'll certainly make one, um, uh, in the later, later part of next summer. I mean, I would love to run 230. Wow. But I don't know, like that was going to be my goal. That was going to be my goal this year was to run 230. Um, and it was also my goal last year. So I'm just going to keep the goal until I do it. <laughs> yeah, 230 age 48, I think would be just as incredible as 227 at 42. But, uh, John's going to pay me $300 if I break three hours ever again in my entire life. And we're the same age. So <laughs> let's do it. Let's go to Berlin and both tie. Oh no, this isn't, a, now I might have to take this bet back because if you have Dina Castor giving you a training advice, that's like, you know, Robert's going to be doing a lot better. I quite, I think you're a little more committed than he is yes. at this stage of your lives though, Dina. Oh my gosh. Yeah, but I, but it's challenging for me to get out the door. Homeschooling, that's why Robert, I'm like, gosh, you look so, you look so rested. Like 
I feel like any parent right now should just like look like death warmed over maybe because that's what I see when I look in the mirror. This the homeschooling thing is killing me. It's really killing me. Well, thankfully, too, he's not into homeschool quite yet. So we taught him to, we yeah. taught him to say happy Mother's Day yesterday. He did a good job. I did. So oh, it was interesting. Sweet. He wouldn't say it in front of me, though. He gets embarrassed. He, wants, he doesn't want to show his, his sensitive side around dad. He only does it when privately with mom. Oh, that's sweet. That's good. So we ha- he he uses you both in, in different capacities. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Robert, do you have anything else to, to ask Dina? I think we've, you know. No, it's been great. But folks, if you seriously check out the show notes, we'll put a link to her book. I haven't read it, but I was just reading the, the intro to it t- today. It looks fantastic. I'm also putting Robert, if you don't know how to read, you can certainly get the, the audible version and I'll read it to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did you do the narration for it, Dina? I did, yes. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. It, it actually conquered a fear. I don't like reading aloud. And so it was it was a big step in conquering conquering that little demon inside of me. How long did it take? Uh, well, I had the studio for five days and the competitor in me got it done in three. Nice. All right. Well, that's so a- I, I didn't tell every I didn't tell my family that I was done recording. And I booked myself a bungalow at the Fairmont in Santa Monica and stayed in a bathrobe for two days and got room service. It was amazing. Wow. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I, I got to write a book and do that. <laughs> incredible. But now my secret's out. Yeah. All right. Well, Dina, we really appreciate you joining us again. She's an Olympic bronze medalist, uh, two-time world major marathon champion. Uh, so many two-time world cross country medalist. Let's run's greatest American female distance runner of all time. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us on the let's run track talk podcast, Dina. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Robert. And congratulations to Weldon on his, on his new baby. I think the wife deserves the credit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All oh, right. he'll, he'll, he'll need credit soon enough and certainly need your moral support. <laughs> Let's pause for a moment and give a shout out to the sponsor of this week's podcast, thefeed.com. They've got you covered. Need something for your running? Want to take your running to the next level? Go there. You can get the Martin Sports Drink. You can get a PR lotion, even an AeroFit respiratory muscle training device. Pretty cool stuff. They've also got some COVID-19 stuff. How about an immunity boosting pack? or even their BLDG Active Antimicrobial Hand and Face Spray. So check it out. Go to thefeed.com slash let's run. Again, thefeed.com slash let's run, and you'll save 15% on your entire order. And while you're on the internet, why don't you check out the letsrun.com shoe site. Go to letsrun.com slash shoes, and you can find the best prices and the best reviews. If you don't need to buy shoes, how about you review a shoe and help somebody else out? Thanks so much for supporting us.